few of you over the morning to you about uh, different pieces from your discussion groups. What I heard was encouraging and challenging, and I hope to spur a bit more conversation with this session, and maybe even uh, provoke a bit more, if you'll let me. So, before we dive in uh, to 816, I want to just go back uh, to a few things that we had to miss out uh, of the first session this morning. We saw that God has spoken definitively through his Son, and that Son is now seated on the throne in heaven. And we were talking about God's speech, and this idea that God speaks clearly, and his speech to all people is in his word, written word, and that written word points us to Jesus. So it's in Jesus that we really come to understand who God is and what he's like. And some of the middle parts that we didn't have time to look at in the first section this morning, 1, 1 to 4, uh, will launch us into our section in chapter 8. And so you're going to see up here in just a moment uh, a few images. And there was image language that we skipped over, wasn't there? That Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, and he is the very imprint of his nature. So, this, there's a coin, it's a gold coin, very, fairly rare, if you happen to have one, I'd love to talk to you about it. I love ancient coins, actually. Uh, this coin happens to have a bust of Nero, the Emperor Nero, the infamous Nero, who lived during the time of the New Testament and persecuted Christians. Uh, well, this is Nero's imprint. This is the same kind of word and idea that we get in Hebrews chapter 1. That Jesus is the imprint. He's the representation that shows us who God is and what he's like. But even better is this next image. The two images, actually. Because when we get the language not only of imprint, but radiance and imprint, and we trace that in the language of the first century, what we find is that it leads us to images like these. Now, I don't know if you folks on the, on the right hand picture there, but it's to give you a sense of scale. These are huge reliefs that are found all over Asia Minor, uh, modern-day Turkey. And they're accompanied by text, text that talks about a king who is the imprint, the image, the very radiance of a god who has set him on the throne. And you can see that in these pictures here. On the right there, there's Heracles on the right, and a king on the left. They've got their hands joined, right hands joined, and he's about to be seated on his throne, and the radiance of the god is legitimating the rule of the king. The same thing is happening here, although it's a little harder to see. Uh, this image on the left, if you could see it better, what you would see was the god Apollos. And the radiance, the, the beams of light are shining from his head and reflecting then off of the king whom he is setting on the throne. This is the idea that Hebrews wants us to have, that it had for its first audience that Jesus has been set by God on the throne to reflect and shine forth his glory, his image, his character, to reveal what we can't see otherwise. We have to look to Jesus. We have to listen to God's word spoken through Jesus if we want to know what God is like. And that son, then, is a royal son. He's a king who is seated on the throne in heaven. That's where we left off this morning. And I promised you some good news. What we've done so far is laid the foundation for the good news. The good news of Jesus' work, which has been completed, but also his ongoing present ministry for us. 
which is our theme this weekend. And that theme comes up again in the text we'll look at now, in chapter 8. In fact, I love this text because it's so infrequent that you read something in Scripture that tells you what the main point is. But we get that here, don't we? Did you catch that right at the beginning? This is the main point. This is the point of what we have been saying. So there is this great big flashing signpost to us at chapter 8, verse 1, that here we're reaching a summary of everything that's come before, and we're going to build on that as we launch into the final chapters of Hebrews. This is the main point of what we've been saying, the author writes. Well, what's the main point? The point of what we've been saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Now, hang on. We've heard that language before, haven't we? Seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. This comes straight from the opening that we just looked at earlier this morning. But what has been added? There's something else here. Something that comes between chapter 1 and between chapter 8 that now is put together with that statement. And that comes right before it. We have such a high priest. Such a high priest. This one who is seated in the heavens. All of a sudden now, in chapter 8, the idea of Jesus seated as the king who shines forth God's character, his glory, his message to us, that king image has been joined to a priest image. And that has happened in the intervening chapters of Hebrews. And when we get to 8.1 then, the message, the main point for us to grasp is we have such a high priest. Well, if you're really listening, the question that should come to your mind is, okay, such a, that, that begs the question, what kind, doesn't it? If I come into a conversation, uh, as I often will do today, and uh, introduce myself and kind of interrupt the conversation because you're carrying on, and I happen to come up and I hear one of you saying, well, Roger is such a minister. He's that kind of a minister. I might say, well, what do you mean? Which, which Roger, actually? <laughs> what kind of minister is Roger? That would pique my interest because I'd want to know. Obviously, the earlier part of your conversation that I had missed is key to understanding what this such a minister, such a kind of high priest is. So in our text, we have to ask, what does this such bring in to this main point for us? And in order to answer that question, we have to fast forward through several chapters of Hebrews. So are you ready? Get your Bibles ready because we're going to be clicking through lots of texts to get up to speed so that we can understand this main point. Zipping through chapters 2 to 7. Now, it gives me some comfort to know that many of you have been reading through Hebrews, so this will be familiar. For those of you that this is the first time, hang on, and feel free to go back over the course of the next couple days or weeks and really dig into these chapters to see how it works. As I mentioned before, Hebrews has a wonderful way of interlocking section to section to carry you through the whole message. And we're going to run through that at this point. So, look back over to chapter 2, if you would. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, we get the very first command in Hebrews. It takes us all the way into the second chapter before we get something that we're told we should be doing. And what we're told is a warning. It says this, pay closer attention to this message about Jesus, lest you drift away from it. So having introduced in chapter 1 the, the idea of Jesus as the exalted 
royal son of God who reveals God to us, through whom God speaks to us. Now in chapter 2, we're told to pay more careful attention to what we've heard about him. To focus, to think, think hard and listen carefully. And then chapter 2 goes on to unfold not the exalted, glorious, ascended Jesus, but it goes back to the earthly ministry and the suffering and the work of Jesus when he was here on earth. That's what chapter 2 is all about. So in chapter 2, verse 9, we see, but we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. It was Jesus' work on earth, his obedient life, his sinless death, which gave him the right to be crowned king and enthroned in heaven. There is a progression there, a connection between Jesus' earthly ministry that sets him up to engage in this ministry presently from heaven. To, uh, chapter 2, verses 17 to 18, go on. Therefore, we read, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, just like us, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, big word there, but we'll come back to these ideas, for the sins of the people, for because he himself has suffered and tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What kind of high priest is Jesus? When we get to chapter 8, he's such a high priest. Well, according to chapter 2, he's a merciful high priest. He has a deep compassion for his people. His love for his people is what led him to become human, to leave his rightful place in heaven in the first place, to take on flesh, to live, to suffer, to be tempted, to die for us. That's the kind of high priest we have, according to chapter 2. And he's a high priest who was faithful. He kept the commandments of God to the letter. What we could not do, he did. We have a high priest who's sympathetic, who knows the power of temptation. In fact, he knows the power of temptation far more deeply than we do. Because whereas you and I, you know, we might resist temptation a little bit, might we? But more often than not, we tend to give in at some point. We very rarely resist all the way through. We might grow in certain areas of our lives, and, and God willing, we do, but oftentimes we fall. But Jesus never does. Never once. He always resisted all the way through to the end. That wonderful uh, narrative in Luke chapter 4, Jesus in the wilderness being tempted, tested by Satan himself. And he continues obediently to resist, to persevere, standing on the basis of God's promises and God's word. He is a faithful high priest, according to chapter 2. Why do we need a faithful high priest? If you didn't know you needed a priest, we don't talk about priests much. We have rectors, but we more often talk about ministers. Thinking in the Anglican Church, at least in Sydney. Uh, I've come from the Presbyterian tradition, so we talk about ministers, pastors, elders, but not priests. Priests, for some of us, has a little bit of an edgy connotation to it, depending on our own background and experience. Why do we need a priest? According to chapter 2 of Hebrews, we need a representative who can stand before God in our place to keep his command perfectly, and to bear the curse that we deserve, so that we have no need to fear death. 
because we can trust in our representative. We have such a high priest, according to chapter 2. Now all of this, of course, involves us in a conversation about sin. We heard the word propitiation, big word, this word that means something like covering over sin. In the Old Testament, the image is sprinkling blood over something, covering that sin, so that God's wrath will not burst out against sinful people. Well, sin is not a word that we like to use a whole lot anymore. It seems a bit old-fashioned, it even seems a bit offensive, but let me push that a bit, if I can, to talk about sin. Because sin is something that's different than simply being broken. We often talk about being broken, and that's okay, but being broken can have the connotation of, well, I'm a bit of a victim, right? Something broke me. True, we enter this life as sinful, and we participate with Adam in, in his sin, according to the scriptures. There's a mystery there of Adam representing us as the first sinner, but we also sin, and we know we sin. It's not something that's done to us. We actively sin, according to the scriptures, in faith. God's holy commandments. That's what stands behind our need for such a great high priest, according to these chapters in Hebrews. Again, I'm a Presbyterian, but I love, I love the Anglican prayer book. I don't know if at any of your services, and I love the old prayer book, say that. I, I don't know if at your services you use the prayer book. I suspect that you do from time to time, if not regularly. If you don't know the prayer book, or if it's new to you, I encourage you, it's a great resource. It's not the only way to do things, but it's a wonderful resource. And I think your prayer book gets it just right on this count. In your prayer book, in the Anglican prayer book, the general confession puts the issue of sin perfectly when it says this. We pray this, if we use the prayer book. We say, we have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is no help in us. That, brothers and sisters, is what sin is about. We have left undone the things we ought to have done, and we have done those things we ought not to have done. There is no help in us. And until we realize, until we hear God's word speaking that truth to us, because of course the prayer book takes those ideas and that language from scripture. Until we hear God's word speaking that to us and acknowledge that God has spoken truly about who we are, then we don't know our own sin. And we don't know our need for a great high priest. And we can't hear the greatness of the goodness until we acknowledge that bad news. So sin is lurking in the background of all the good things Hebrews has to say here. And it's worth thinking about. It's worth considering our own sin and our need for a great high priest. Well, chapter 3 moves on. We have to as well. Not only is Jesus the exalted son, the suffering son, the great high priest, he is a faithful ruler over God's house. He was greater than the angels, in the opening chapters, now he's greater than Moses, who helps rule over or manage the Old Testament house of God, the Israelites. And in chapter 3, verse 12, we see another command. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you 
and evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Chapter 4 goes on, and it adds and expands on this tragic example of the Israelites in that Exodus wilderness generation as they're wandering through the desert for 40 years because of their sinfulness, because of their failure to trust God's word, to listen to him as he speaks, and to follow him. And what happens to them? They don't enter the land. And Hebrews says, look at that example, be afraid, and be moved, be moved to do what they did not do, because the promise came to them and was not received by faith. But you, Hebrews says, you, you do better because you have a great high priest working for you. So in chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, we do this. For the word of God is living and active, that speech pierces. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. In that, there's a beautiful wordplay. The word of God comes to us, it exposes us for who we are, it pierces into the most inner, secret parts of your heart and your mind, and it calls forth a word in response. Literally, that word that's translated account is word. It's saying, to God's word, calls forth a word from us. We have to respond. We will have to respond and give an account. God's word will hold us accountable. But God's word, immediately after, wants us to only the promise in verses 14 to 16 of chapter 4. Maybe some of my favorite verses in this whole book. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Look at this. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. When the Word of God addresses us, it strips us bare of all pretense to righteousness, to being a good person. It uncovers us for who we are. It also directs us to the solution of our predicament, the one who has provided for us a righteousness we can't own, the one who has taken the curse that we deserve, one who is sympathetic with all our weaknesses, the Lord Jesus himself, so that we can come upon grace and mercy in our deepest time of need. Chapters 5 through 7, we have to skip over. But they're rich, they're complicated. They bring in some Old Testament figures who are hard to understand. But the point of those chapters is that Jesus is a certain kind of priest. In fact, he's a priest who rules forever. There's a permanence to his priesthood. And there's a perfection to his priesthood. All of the Old Testament priests die. They all die, every one of them. And they had to be replaced. Jesus, on the other hand, will never die. His ministry is permanent, perpetual. All of the Old Testament priests had to come first and offer a sacrifice for their own sins. I'm sorry, I'm a bit off of the track. Thank you for having me as I rearrange here. 
they had to slay an animal, an ox, and offer that blood for their own sins before they dared to approach God. Jesus was sinless, and his offering was not repeated day after day, year after year. It was once for all, Hebrews reminds us. It was a perfect priestly offering. Well, that's, a, that's an all-too-quick run-through of Hebrews. And I want to move to the slide that summarizes the kind of high priest we have. As we come back around to chapter 8, verse 1, we have a merciful high priest who knows our weaknesses. We have a sympathetic high priest who knows the power of temptation. We have a faithful high priest who perfectly obeyed and fulfilled God's commands. We have a great high priest who ushers us, brings us, invites us to the very throne of grace. We have a high priest whose ministry is perfect in its sinless sacrifice, and whose ministry is perfect in its permanence. This is what that little word such means in chapter 8, verse 1. This is the kind of high priest we have. And since we have that kind of high priest, then he goes into the song, the pivots on that truth to move us forward. That, Christian, is the kind of high priest you have when you cast yourself upon the mercy of the Lord Jesus. A high priest who in chapter 7, verse 25, always lives to make intercession for you. In a strange sense, it is all about you when it comes to Jesus' ministry. His ministry glorifies God, and that's the ultimate purpose. But it is all directed in love to you. He always lives to intercede for you. This is the kind of high priest we have in Jesus. And according to our passage, our mediator's ministry is now in a new term. Not just a king, not just a high priest, but a mediator. Our mediator's ministry rests on his finished work and God's unshakable promises. So that's our big idea that we're going to very quickly move through and set up what we'll look at in chapter 10 this afternoon. A brief look at some vocabulary of our mediator's ministry. We talked this morning about God's speech. It's a language. We have to learn. We have to begin to understand. And every language has vocabulary. If you've ever sat there and labored over flashcards, and maybe now you have on your iPod an app that helps you practice and you learn your language, you have to learn the language that the Bible speaks in order to get the most out of what it's saying. And some of the language that this passage uses can be confusing. We already have looked at priests, so I'm going to skip over that for now. But I want to look at this language of tent, or tabernacle. Same, same word, you can translate it either way. Because in chapter 8, verse 2, we hear about Jesus, our high priest, ministering in a true tent. Not like the old tent. Well, what's this business about a tent? This is the Old Testament word for tabernacle which was the mobile forerunner of Israel's temple. It moved with the people. We're going to come back to this in a moment and have a little look at the tabernacle. But that's what tent means. Another term that comes into play here is covenant. And anyone who spent any time trying to understand covenants is going to laugh when I say we'll do this in a moment. But it's something I want to pique your interest in, and there's plenty more to learn on the issue of covenants. Covenant is a word that is absolutely important for understanding the message of this passage and the message of the whole Bible. In verse 6, we hear about the Old Covenant and the fact that the covenant Jesus mediates is a better one. So there's an Old Covenant 
And there's a better one. Later on, Hebrews will call it a new covenant. By the first one, it refers to the covenant with Moses. Through Moses with Israel in the Old Testament. But of course, there are many covenants in the Old Testament. God makes a covenant with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, with David. He promises a new covenant with Jeremiah. And then he brings the new covenant with Jesus. We talked about the progression of God's speech. That's a great way to read the chapters of this story. To watch the scenes unfolding in this drama is to watch those points of movement following those covenants of those figures I just mentioned. But covenant, in this passage, sets up the idea of a relationship, a relationship that God enters into with his people. There was an old covenant that worked one way, there's a better covenant that works a different and better way. In the old covenant, according to Exodus chapter 24, the people were sprinkled with blood by Moses, and they said, everything the Lord has said, we will obey. We will do it all. The covenant that God made with them required obedience from them in order for them to receive the blessings that it offered. Of course, they failed. They're bound to fail, weren't they, as sinners like us. But now there's a better covenant, Hebrews says. A new covenant with a better mediator. Because now, the blessings of the covenant, the new one, are not dependent on us. We don't have to say, Everything you command, we will do. Because our Savior, our High Priest, has already done it. The finished work of Christ, in his life, ministry, death, resurrection, now ascension, and enthronement, is the finished performance, the basis on which this new covenant is founded. And that is good news for us, because it is not dependent on us. And thank the Lord. Because if it were, we would be in dire straits. So we have a better mediator. We have a tent that's different. We have a new covenant that's better. But so much for the vocabulary. Let me come back for just a moment as we think about the geography of Jesus' ministry and have a look at this idea of the Old Testament tabernacle in the temple. And you'll see here, I forget, sorry, if I put the picture first or the video. Picture. Yeah, if we can look at just the, the image. So, some folks in Israel, if you can see that, have tried to reconstruct the tabernacle. There's also one, I'm told, in eastern Pennsylvania. So, if you can't get to Israel, you might be able to get to Pennsylvania and have a, have a walk through. Uh, so, this gives you a little bit of a sense. It's a tent in the desert with the wall around it. But it's all mobile. It moves with the people in the story of the Exodus, wandering in the wilderness. Well, the next bit is, uh, it's a bit jerky, but there's a, someone who's gone to the trouble to set up a little TV tour, virtual tour of the tabernacle. I think it's helpful if you get a sense of the basic structure. So let's have a look at this, if we can get it going. And what I want you to watch for are the three parts that make up the tabernacle. There are three different areas. And those become very important in Hebrews' explanation of Jesus' ministry for us. So here's a bit about the geography of his ministry as we look at a tour of the Old Testament tent or tabernacle. So 
camp was set up so that this was at the center. All kinds of different instruments that you can read about in Exodus have different functions. But now we're about to enter into the second stage or place called the holy place. This is where only the priests can go. And here there are other pieces of furniture that are essential for the ministry that they were entrusted with as representative of the people to God. And now we enter where only one person could ever enter, the great the, the high priest, and only one day a year. You can download it at that site. Well, it's a bit shaky, but it gives you a sense of the three areas, and where we end up is what's called the most holy place, sometimes the holy of holies. And this is where God's visible glory actually dwells. See, Moses, as our passage reminds us, was given a pattern, a template, a blueprint, when he went up on Mount Sinai by God. He was shown exactly how to make this tabernacle, this tent, all the way down to how you weave the hangings and curtains, how you make the furniture, how you structure it, how many cubits long and wide. It had to be exactly so because it was to represent to the people what it was like to approach God's holy presence. And only one day a year could the high priest enter into that most inner place, the Holy of Holies, after having made sacrifices. And it was there that the very presence of God dwelt amongst his people. Well, Jesus, Hebrews tells us, is a greater high priest. He's the mediator of a better covenant, and he ministers in a better tent, the true tent, the one that that old tent was only a shadow of, only a little sketch that, that pointed to the true tent in heaven. And now Jesus has entered that tent. We'll talk more about that this afternoon. But we want to finish by thinking about not just the language, vocabulary, or the geography of Jesus' mediatorship, but the certainty, because this is the best part. Not only does Jesus' performance secure the blessings for us, but God's promises are added to Jesus' performance. In fact, they're bound together. Jesus, in his sacrifice of himself, sealed the promises of God. And our passage talks about these greater, more secure promises. Well, what you see here is an image. Have any of you ever been ice climbing? Any of you climbers, rock climbers, ice climbers? Okay. Well, I'm not, actually, although I've done it. And my wife has done it, and she's seen me fail. And that's why I wanted to talk about it. Because I would have been dead if not for one of these. This is an ice anchor. So we, I've spent a few summers working in Alaska. And the reason I went there was because I could work and play at the same time. And you can go out in the crevasses and the, the glaciers, and you can just drop down into one of these huge cracks in the ice. A lawn, a crevasse. You've got your ice axes, your crampons, and you just walk your way down the wall. You're on a belay, you're on a rope. Nice and easy. But then you have to get back up. And thankfully, I went climbing with someone who knew what he was doing even though I overestimated my own ability, and he set up an ice anchor, just like this, three points, screws in the ice, cover it over with melted ice, and then freezes again. He knew exactly how to make the anchor so that it would hold, no matter what. So that when I got stuck down in the crevasse, because all my strength and ability had given out, 
He was able to pull me up and bring me out. Otherwise, I wouldn't have made it. I guess I could have sat there on the ledge until the next day and hoped to regain some strength while I froze, but it probably wouldn't work. I would have been gone without this ice anchor. And God, and promises, according to Hebrews, provides us an anchor. You had to skip over this section in chapter 6, but maybe you know it if you've read that. If not, have a look at it this afternoon. That God's promises sealed in Jesus' death are an anchor, a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls, pulling us up when we can't do it ourselves, when we fall, when we get into temptation, when we fail in the Christian life, when we doubt and we're just not sure, there's an anchor for us that pulls us along after Jesus. And it pulls us into the presence of God where we find grace and mercy in our time of need. So I want to finish with uh, the words of an older hymn. Maybe some of you know it. A hymn called My Hope is Built on Nothing Less. The first verse is probably well known. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. That's the third verse I love most from Hebrews. His oath, his covenant, his blood supports me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope to stay. Jesus' work and God's promise is the basis of our security and relationship with God. Not our performance, but His. Not our faithfulness, but His promise. And this afternoon, we'll have a chance to unfold that a bit more. And we're going to come back to this idea of promise and the further benefits that this communicates to us when we cast ourselves upon such a great high priest. Lord, we give you thanks again for your word. We thank you for its encouragement, for its power. And we do pray that even as it pierces us, it will pull us to you. We thank you for the finished work of our Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.